You are listening to The Universal Mindset, and I'm your host, Michael Jinks, dedicated to opening up your mind, heart, and soul. I'll talk to you about the mistakes I've made, the lessons I've learned, and ultimately the happiness I've found by surrendering control to the universe and following my universal calling. All right, welcome to the show. Uh, I have uh, Kyle Crosby with me today. We're talking about addiction. I think this is going to be quite an amazing show. Two guys drinking energy drinks and (laughs) snorting menthol sticks. Nice. Uh, So, yeah, so um, I've been really excited to do this episode, especially in, you know, my, you and I had lunch and I was talking to you about my 30-day cleanse from All Substance and... You know, while I've never quite felt that I've reached those super addictive levels, at some point I was feeling, you know, the beginning of addiction in some way. And so it was important for me to do that reset. And I think it's important for anyone who, uh, you know, does any kind of substance to make sure that that substance is never controlling them and to, to reset too. And and you've shared some amazing stories with me. Your life story is fucking crazy. <laughs> I think you will. You need to and you should and hopefully you will write a book at some point, but, uh, so yeah, so here we are. And I think, uh, let me, let me kind of introduce to, you know, the podcast listeners, how I met you. And it was so awesome that you reminded me of this when you came in today. The first time we met was you are my, one of my good friend, Letty, you are her brother. And Letty was doing a yoga on the rooftop at her apartments that she lived at. Yoga under the stars. Yoga under the stars. Amazing. And, uh, you were the one who, I, I think I was the last to arrive, if, if not one of the last people the to arrive. Last. The last. Okay, thank you. <laughs> and uh, you came and got me and, uh, you know, brought me up to that uh, rooftop area, had an amazing night there. And then you just reminded me that while we were sitting there afterwards, because it was a, I think it was a full moon, mm-hmm. a new moon, you know, and full moon. it was coming up right over the, right over the Eastern mountains. And we were just, I, I remember having, doing like a, what are those called? Time lapse video on my phone of this uh, this moon rising, and we were talking to some amazing people. One of those people was JoJo, who I didn't realize. I I honestly don't remember this until you were telling me that her and I were talking about that she was saying she had a podcast, and I was saying, "Oh wow, I really wanted to do one." And she was even talking about this studio then, because she was the one that introduced me to this studio. What maybe five or six weeks ago, and it's been such an amazing place to record. Uh, like when I have guests, just amazing setup here um, at this Salt Lake Community College uh, little off-site campus. But yeah, I love kind of how that tied all back in, that, you know, bringing you here. That was the night I met JoJo. She was talking about the podcast. And here we all are, Vortex looped in together. Literally, as you were talking, I was thinking about that night, which would be really close to seven months ago. Mm Mm-hmm. And all the things that had not lined up in your life yet. So that night, I knew my sister has a, you know, she she knows some people that have some clout in this world. And I can tell who she really respects. Let's put it this way to anybody, obviously, who wasn't at the yoga that night. There was no room. Like, people were, like, <laughs> yeah, it was busy. Feet, feet to faces, up, <laughs> up and down. It, it, was a, it was an amazing event. It was an amazing turnout, especially for the first time ever. And um, she said, Mike is coming. 
I have a mat saved for him and just a couple other things. And I was like, okay, this is, this is an important person to my sister. <laughs> He's obviously had an impact on her life because of all the things that she had on her mind that night. There's probably 40 people at the time. <laughs> She's making sure you know you have a space and that I'm, she wants me out front until I walk personally walk <laughs> you back. So I was like, okay, I want to... I want to see why this guy is has made has such a profound impact on my sister. I love and it. And so perhaps, and by the way, anybody listening, this is the first time I've ever shared this with Jinx. And um, so that's that's probably a big reason why I was I was listening so intently at the pool that night mm. as everybody was talking. And I'm cognizant of so much. It was also a point in time for me in my life when I just got out of detox, just got all the chemicals out of my system that. I'd been there for years, and um, it was so amazing going from not remembering my 40th birthday. No clue. Ooh. I only remember it because of pictures in my phone. If you told me those things happened, I would tell you you're crazy. I don't know what you're talking about, but I've seen the Oreo cookies spelling a four and a zero on the back of my car. <laughs> but other than that, I will swear to you that didn't exist. Wow. And once, I'm just now having this epiphany that once the chemicals came out of my body, I remember everything in extreme detail because it was, I believe in my heart of hearts that night, July 24th, 2019, was a, a rebirth for me, a very painful rebirth as one spirit was put to death mm. and my true spirit was reborn that day. Amazing. So that's the story we're getting into now and this amazing uh, story you have. And I mean, how, how many times was it at that point that you had done some kind of rehab? So before they'll let you in rehab, which is extremely expensive, dirt cheap rehab, crappy, crappy rehab is $800 a day. Whoa. Um, oh my God. Middle really? of the road rehab is about $2,600 a day. Wow. If you want to go up to Circle Lodge, seven, $8,000 a day where the mm. celebrities go. Crazy. Um, I, I do have a friend from New York who went through Cirque. Her family's extremely well off. Um, so before they'll ever let you into a treatment center, they want you to give intensive outpatient a shot, which is six weeks. Um, it, you need to have a work schedule that uh, you, can, you can meet at nights. Uh, they'll do three nights a week from six to nine. Mm. So you'll be getting off with... Uh, my particular group, dentist, mechanics, nurse, um, basically alcohol does not discriminate. Sure. It's the one thing that, not, not, not alcohol, let me rephrase that, addiction doesn't, it's interesting, I th my picture of somebody who was a drug addict or an alcoholic was somebody on Skid Row in Los Angeles that pushed a shopping cart. Yeah, it can be anybody. And that's just not yeah. how it works. It, it, it does not discriminate. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I, I think the other thing I've realized of addiction to is it's not, I mean, drugs are just some of the most dangerous types of addictions, right? I mean, like we, I, I've realized how addictive of a person I am in general. I mean, like I love my phone games. I love to eat. And it's like I find that if I curb one addiction, I almost like push it into another, right? And I see... 
I see people that are able to come out of alcoholism, but then they go into something else, right? They become extremely crazy spiritual or they become, you know, it's just like almost like we're designed to be, to have addictive, uh, like these cravings, but you know, drugs, these, these substances that you got into and that other people got into, I mean, these are just the ones that are the most dangerous for us, the ones that are the most harmful. So you want to talk specifically, let's dive into your, your journey, what, you know, your drug of choice, kind of your, your experiences, go through as much of that as you, you feel comfortable, brother. I really appreciate you being, you know, vulnerable in the space to open this up because you never know who it might help. Right. And, and when I remember the first few times, you know, getting to know you better, listening to your stories. And like I said earlier, I mean, I just think at some point, you know, you'll write a book. And I think even shortly after we first met, you started even just taking notes and different things like that, like writing things down as they came. Yeah. And, and, you know, there there are people out there who can identify with what you've gone through or identify with, you know, some of these things that you're going to talk about. And and even if it helps one person, fuck, I mean, that's good enough because of kind of that your own hell that you went through. So <clears throat> before I, I really... Uh, go into my past a, a few things that I want to put out there is, is that no one person speaks on behalf of alcoholism or any type of addiction and the things I'm going to share are just my experience and like you said my hope for today is that somebody whose heart ha- is cold and has been turned and feels the same way I did where I said I would fucking rather be dead than identify as an alcoholic Mm. or an addict. I hope they will hear something in my story and find strength in it. When I first used to go to meetings, I used to hear people say that they were a grateful alcoholic or a grateful addict. And I remember my first thought is, you are dumb as fuck. (laughs) What does that mean? That's the stupidest thing I've ever heard. (laughs) You're grateful you have to fucking come to these meetings and do all this work. And so uh, I'm going to, I'm going to circle back around to that and where the change came for me. Mm -hmm. So a little bit of, um, going into, into my history, my first drunk was 10 years old, fifth Mm -hmm. grade. Um, there's no point in going into what I drank. I, I don't want, the last thing I want this to turn into is a drunk log. Everybody has one. Everybody has a using and a, and a drinking log. Mine's not special. Um, the first time that I did pot, I was 10. Yeah. Um, thinking now I have a son who's just about to turn um, seven years old on the 7th of this month, March 7th. My son will be seven years old. If you were to tell me that my son at age 10 would have already been drunk, and was smoking weed with the gangsters in the neighborhood to not get jumped. So I grew up in a community that's 78% Hispanic, but on the block I lived on, there was 12 houses on a cul-de-sac. We were the only white family. Mm. I've had bricks thrown at me because I'm white. Um, I've had people jump me because I'm white. But I quickly realized that there was this girl who was tough as hell. She used to fight guys. She'd stab them with screwdrivers. She was, She was just... She fought, she fought the guy. She didn't fight the girl. She was too strong. She was, she was, she was very well respected. And I knew if I got stoned with her, mm. she would tell people, Hey, don't fuck with him. He's with me. <clears throat> yeah. So anyways, my drug use started off not because I wanted to escape, but because 
I didn't want to live in fear, yeah. fear for my own safety. And now that's one thing that I had to work through um, as I got older as a parent and realizing it made me have a lot of hate towards my mother, thinking, Jesus Christ, if I put my kids in a position where they had to do fucking drugs to feel safe. Well, anyways, that's a whole other story. But the point is, so my first my first high, my first drunk was age 10. Um, and then throughout my life, like in high school, I, I drank. I drank at like parties and stuff. And then if I woke up and, and I did too much the night before, I was puking or whatever, I was like, screw this. I was able just to walk away from it. Mm. Um, I, I remember when I quit smoking pot in high school. It, it was a very short period. But I remember looking around the room and every guy in the room was a complete loser. I told myself, fuck this. You're way better <laughs> than this shit. There's yeah. not one cute girl in here. Actually, <clears throat> there's no cute girls in here. I'm sitting around with a bunch of guys who look cross-eyed and just look like <laughs> losers in life. And and that's 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 not who I am. Um, high school. Th- this this is uh, I believe a big part of my story. So I'm going to mention this. Um, our dad was killed yeah, on my sister's right. 18th birthday. Yeah. Unbelievable. January 10th. Drunk driver. Oh, uh, my freshman year. It was a gentleman by the name of Kenneth Mantooth was laying on the floor of his company truck. He had been, I believe, on a four-day cocaine binge mm. and was finally coming down and was pre- pressing the gas pedal, going down a hill in Humble, Texas, which is a very nice suburb of Houston. And uh, my dad was the sixth person making a left-hand turn through a light. The guy T-boned him dead on. Wow. There was a police car, three cars behind my dad. He immediately called in a life flight. The life flight, they took him to the first hospital. He was too extreme. And then on the way to flying to the second hospital, he died. I want to publicly <coughs> thank Kenneth Mantooth for taking my dad's life. I cannot imagine the burden that this man has had to bear. Whether he knows that he took a father of seven children that day. Wow. Children that went from as old as 18 and as young as 10, seven kids all in that age range. They probably needed their father more than, than ever, especially that, that was my story. Being a 14-year-old teenager, um, that December, so four weeks before I'd had the first real conversation ever with my father, um, he had told me he didn't care about the weather. He wasn't going to ask me anymore. He wasn't going to ask me about school. He said he wanted to know the real shit that was going on in my life. He said he wanted to know about the girls I hang out with and the real things that I do and the things that I've always been afraid to just be open and real about him. And he just he, he just laid out the terms for us to finally have an open, real relationship. And um, apparently he couldn't learn his lessons on this side of, mm. of the earth and needed to go somewhere else to continue his journey and was taken out six weeks later. And so for me, my whole thing had always been my dad, ever since I was probably like eight years old, my dad was uh, a custom designer in the jewelry business, went over to Israel and picked out stones for um, people in the oil industry, multimillionaires that wanted someone to come into their home, sit down with them and their wife, girlfriend, design a ring, 
he they would tell him the exact stone they wanted. He'd go over to Israel and get it, come back, design the, the ring that he had drawn out for him. Um, and he always told me, he just said, he would say, he would always tell me, he's like, Kyle, let's give it a couple more years and I'm going to explain this whole world to you and how it works and everything else. Mm. Always looked up to my dad. He always had one gun under his seat, always wore a suit coat, even if it was 98 degrees <laughs> in Texas, humid as hell, everybody's pouring in sweat. Yeah. He had to wear a suit coat to uh, hide his concealed weapon, mm. typically carried about $40,000 in stones in his briefcase. If he's going to see somebody, probably upwards of 100000 Crazy. Um, anyways, so the point of all that was that I always just assumed that I would end up working with my dad. Mm. So when he died, I felt completely lost. Um, I actually, your freshman year of high school, you're supposed to have six credits when you're done. I had one and a half. Mm. So literally, I was a, a whole year behind in school. No reason I had one and a half is two, uh, two teachers felt sorry for me. One gave me a D, which you still get a credit, and one gave me an A. <laughs> Anyways, um, so from there, I, I have my points where um, I, I really, I've, I've never been the guy who's wanted to try party drugs. I had no interest in trying ecstasy, acid, Pot always made me feel stupid. I wanted to be a part of, and pot made me feel dumb, and I felt like I was I was out just silly and, and kind of stupid. Um, I'm one who has trouble giving up control, and so I've never been interested in taking acid or any kind of psychedelics because I'm because of the, some of the stories I've heard from my friends where things they couldn't explain were kind of coming at them or whatever. And I'm like, well, that's not the experience that I'm looking for. So um, anyways, I never tried that. And uh, I remember when it came to cocaine, um, the guy that killed my father did cocaine. And I I swore the day that I found out that he died and the man that killed him was on cocaine that I would never touch it, never touch it. And um, I had some friends that told me what an addictive personality I have. Mm. When I go to the gym... I ball out. I change my body. It, it, things, things start moving fast. Literally, just anything I set my mind to, just watch out, world. Like, here it comes. Yeah. And and drugs and alcohol are no different. Um, I've actually gotten to two fist fights where people were... Um, I let everybody come over to my house one time. And then at some point, some cocaine came out. And one of my friends that was pretty high on it was getting upset that I wouldn't do it and that I had never done it. So he tried pushing my face down in it. Mm. Anyways, it seems like a good enough reason to get into a fight. Oh yeah, at that point, <laughs> yeah, a smash face. I'm behind later. You on that one. <laughs> he learned that wasn't very smart. <laughs> and so then I, I actually explained to my friends moving forward. I'm like, hey, this is why I don't do cocaine. And actually, I'm, I'm appreciative that I shared it with them. I was at a bachelor party, and somebody said, hey, everybody who's down, I don't know how much coke they had. Let's go. There's probably. 15 of my best friends and all of a sudden I found myself completely alone in a room guys I thought that just casually drank every single one of them went upstairs and did coke <laughs> we're in this massive mansion in Scottsdale um anyways so basically long story long is there would be all these points <laughs> where I would drink too much yeah and I would be like fuck this I'm better than this I'm going to stop drinking because I want to be in shape. I want to stop drinking because I want to remember people that I meet. 
I want to stop drinking because I don't want one of my friends saying, do you know what a complete fucking douchebag you were last night? Do you realize that you were trying to take my girlfriend home and my friend's girlfriend home right in front of us? Mm. And I'm like, how'd you hear about that? He's like, Jesus Christ, Kyle, we were there. Yeah, I was there. I was sitting next to her. Yeah. And that was pretty, that, that was enough for me. I'm like, you know what? I don't want to feel stupid like this again. I'm better than this. Um, it's funny. We've talked a lot. I don't know that we've really gone into the, the alcohol side of that addiction of yours before. It's a big part of yeah, my story. Yeah, exactly. I'm just realizing that we've, we've more talked about the more recent one, but hadn't really heard this. So this is yeah, a key part of it, obviously. Alcohol took me without a doubt to my worst place. So where I'm going with this is that I was able just to say, you know what? I'm acting like a dumbass. I'm just not going to drink for a little bit. Um, were you able to do that? Yeah. Oh, okay. It's really, my friends were shocked. Hmm. And a lot of them, they need a social lubricant. But I, I'm very comfortable. That's with a Crosby it. term. Letty's use that on me too. Yeah, yeah social, lubricant. social lubricant. Yeah, one of my friends, if he was not drinking, he was the most annoying person to be around. <laughs> Whereas me, I would just go dance, yeah. and I would tell my friends, you guys are stupid. If you meet a girl who's cute, and she's got a drink in her hand, and she's like, why aren't you drinking? I don't ever tell them, because I don't drink. Yeah. Of course I can fucking drink. and get fucked up tomorrow if I want. and get fucked up right now if I want. But not tonight. Not and I've tonight. always used that. Just not tonight. Not tonight. I always tell everybody that, like, if you tell them you don't drink or drug, they're going to be, like, attacking you all night. Just say, no, I do, just not tonight. Like and then that. everybody's like, hey, call off the cops. They're cool. No, 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 he's one of us. Just not tonight, okay? <laughs> I actually like that. Or I tell them, hey, if you ever want free drugs, just tell people you've never tried it. <laughs> I'm like, there's so many people who are like. Hey, don't, we're not talking about that on this, uh, on this episode. We're talking about addiction on this. Right. We're not talking about how to get, how to score free right. drugs. <laughs> no. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Good point. Good point. Good point. Uh, but that is funny. I mean, like, and that's what's so weird about addiction and different drug use is, like, for me, alcohol's never been an issue for me, and I can drink as sparingly as I want. And I, you know, I've had, I've obviously drank and drunk. There's only one time in my life that I've ever had any momentary blackout from alcohol, and one night that it was spotty. And I still remember a lot of pieces within it, but I just, you know, there were spots I don't remember. But, you know, for me, it's never been like that. A, a lot of people, it can turn them real nasty, right? Like people get mean, people get argumentative. I mean, it's, it's what's, I mean, I guess a lot of drug use in general, it's kind of funny how, how much it varies, how addictive it is to some people isn't necessarily the same to others. And, and I guess that's what's so scary about it is you never know kind of what you're going to be or, you know, how your reaction is going to be. I remember telling my mom the first time I drank, she freaked out because my uncle was an alcoholic. And so to her, it's like everybody's going to be an alcoholic if you drink. And, you know, coming from mm. the Mormon culture, she doesn't really have an experience in that. And so, you know, I, I mean, I got lectures forever when I first started drinking. And it was like, it is not, it doesn't have that power over me. It doesn't wow. have that control. But, you know, I mean, like you, I, I love how you could get to those. I mean, I love how you could get to there, but you are going to crazy spaces Spaces of blacking out, not remembering, oh, acting like an idiot. We haven't even got crazy yet. We haven't <laughs> even talked about we, me waking up in feces. But at the, <laughs> oh, God. oh, it's coming. But at the same time, it's like when you wanted to shut it off for alcohol mm-hmm. in particular, it was it was sounds like it was relatively easy for you to do until it wasn't. Until it wasn't. I love yes. <laughs> so good. That's addiction. Easy to do until it isn't. Right. 
Um, wow. Yeah, there's a part in the big book. It talks about how alcohol became my master. And so for me, I never liked feeling stupid. I never liked being out of control. And one of the biggest things for me, and this is an ego thing, I didn't, I didn't want to lose people's respect. Mm. And when I felt drunk, sometimes it's kind of like, well, fuck, if that made me feel good, would twice that make me feel great? <laughs> Let's go find out. Yeah. It's interesting for you to say that, you know, you felt yourself kind of blacking out a few times. Yeah. I've woke up in the morning before. I said, man, why does my mouth smell like cologne? It tastes like I drank a bottle of cologne. And I roll over and I look at the side of my bed and I see a stack of tickets. What the hell's going on? And then I look at my phone and it says, baby, I'm going to jail. Bail me out. Do whatever you have to. Bail me out. I got caught. DUI. I saw the cop car turn around. I'm going home at like 3 in the morning and I am plastered. I said, F this. They can't do anything if I'm on private property. It's a race to the gate. And so I see the lights coming at me, and I just gun it 80 miles an hour to the gate of my property. Pushing the button, waiting. I'm like, well, I can't just park in front of the gate. I got to go into my spot. And literally, I had to piece this together, looking at my phone, looking at the tickets, the taste in my mouth. So what happened is I had nothing in my car to try to hide the taste. So I started squirting cologne into my mouth in oh desperation. God. And then it comes back to me. I told the guy, come on, man. Let me just walk up the steps. I'm 12 steps away from my door. Let me go. And I remember this guy saying, you're so fucking lucky. I don't drag you out of your car right now and beat the living fuck out of you. He goes, if it didn't take four hours to process a DUI and I'm supposed to be off in 30 minutes, you'd be fucking going to jail for a long time. Mm. So he gave me six tickets. Wow. $1,300. He fucking hit me for everything. And he knew I wouldn't know if it was wrong or like seatbelt, speeding, U-turns, all this stuff. Good like, for him. Like, yeah. how's he going to know if he did any dick. of that stuff? This <laughs> yeah, guy doesn't even know bastard. he's talking to me. Yeah. So he's so blacked out. Yeah. Literally, I had to look at the tickets, look at the text to my girlfriend, and figure out what this taste was in my mouth to put it all back together. Wow. And that was just, that was just a night that happened. At one point, that, that was just a night that happened for me probably three times a month where I was just, crazy. who the fuck drove that car home because yeah. it wasn't me. Yeah. And I'm looking at my phone to see who I met. What did I say? Um, I want to go back to your point. You talked about how some people, when they drink or whatever, they get feisty. This is what I've always said. Whoever is inside of you when you use drugs or alcohol will come out. I'm a lover. If you got me drunk, I'm going to put my arm around you. I'm going to tell you how much I like you. Yeah. Guys, girls, whatever. I'm not the guy who's going to go That's pick a fight. That's me too. I'm the lover. Yeah. yeah. Whatever's inside of you. If you're a punk, <laughs> you're that guy at the bar who's trying to start a fight with me because I'm six foot four and none of the girls are talking to you or whatever. You know, I'm like, whoever's inside there is socially lubricated out, mm. in my opinion. Mm. Yeah. I'll, I'll, yeah. I get super chatty with the ladies. <laughs> <laughs> and no, uh, yeah, if someone wants trouble, I'll give them some trouble, but I don't go looking for it at all. Um, so, so where did this go to that next, next step for you? Like where, you know, 
the most innocent thing ever. I did mortgages, and I knew everybody in my office did um, Roxy's, Oxy's, Vikes, Perks, whatever, hmm. cocaine. And we had why? A, why would people do that in that setting? Or okay. Like what, you know, so, what so the, we were mortgage loan officers. Super, super stressful. Um, so you didn't even get into those like opioid things because of pain. It was. It wasn't like coming off of surgery or anything. It was just first that time, environment. The first time they gave me opiates for my wisdom teeth taken out. Twenty four. Took them. Took a nap. Woke up. So my wife. <laughs> That's nothing. Wisdom teeth? What do I need pain pills for? Yeah. Did 10 push-ups and puked my guts out and never touched them again. Wow. That was the mental connection for me. Those things equal vomit. Hmm. My friends found out that I had them and literally were like fist fighting to come to my house to get them. I'm like, they're in the mailbox. Oh, I remember. Whoever gets there first, they're yours. I don't care about them. So again, another connection where my brain's like, this doesn't have control over me. So fast forward the tape. I'm... 31 years old and uh, my coworkers, who one of them I know he sold uh, pain meds at work um, and another guy they're going to move to Florida and so they've already shipped their cars out to go live in, to, to Florida and they're on my way to work and they said hey would you mind scooping us up on your way in no problem they're my boys no, no, no problem at all so pick them up from like Wednesday to Friday Friday uh, the guy that I, I would consider more of a friend than an acquaintance of the two, he gets out and then he drops two like little circle oval white pills. I said, what's that? He's like, for giving us a red all week. I think, what an idiot. <laughs> I didn't ask for that. Yeah. It's like giving me cocaine or something. I didn't ask for that. Like, yeah. what the hell? So again, what was my last experience with pain medication? Mm. Puking. Yeah. Uh, had to take some stuff from my uh, my back. Was so out of it, couldn't even work. Again, like this is not something I enjoy. So, anyways, that night I told my girlfriend we were out at some like restaurant, and then I said, "Hey, I'm gonna." We were super open relationship. I said, "I'm gonna pop one of these. Let's just see if it sucks. Never do it again. Yeah. Kind of like pot. I tried it again, probably when I was thirty. Still sucked. Still made me feel stupid. Cool off that for the rest yeah. of my life for sure. Anyways. So I take that pill and I'm looking at her and I was like, holy fuck, I feel amazing. Do you want to feel amazing? So I give her that. She's like, she felt amazing. And I was like, what the heck? And then just like slowly, I asked that guy, like we'd be out. Um, So I had decided to turn off the drinking for like a year and a half. They actually call me Fiji boy because I always had water in my hand (laughs) when we would go out. Um, and the reason that it was easy for me to be out and not drink, I love to dance. I mm. love music. Music makes me feel alive. So when I'm dancing, I'm just dancing, doing my thing and meeting people. Yeah. Um, I feel very comfortable. Some people, when they when they go to a party or a club or, or a group of people and like, oh, I don't know anybody. I'm just the inverse of that. I'm like, this is so fucking cool. I don't know anybody. And I guarantee I'm going to have some <laughs> new friends at the end of the night. Yeah. And then I... I make that happen, whatever. So those those guys gave me those pills. I had that experience with that girl. We're like both like, yeah, we feel pretty cool. Yeah. I would pick up like, so we would go on like a trip or for like a weekend. We would say, let's have a smushy night. Smushy? Is that yeah. what you called it? Yeah, yeah smushy night. Just I can like, see that, yeah. Just chill. Yeah. So we, we just like 
nothing. It was kind of the same thing. Like, take it or leave it. Hey, it felt really good, but I wasn't like, oh, shit, we got to do that again all day, every day. Yeah. Then, then I kind of just like, I just, okay, whatever. And then uh, I, I'm at my mortgage job. Um, that girl that, that I had a couple pills with, she's, she's gone to a different place in her life after like two and a half years. And um, I, I hadn't used pills for, for a few months. You know, it was just, hey, I had a cool few nights, whatever, no big deal. Mm-hmm. No, like, oh, I got to take these every day at work, like my coworker thing. Yep. Um, and then um, I'm working at a different location for a mortgage job. And uh, this guy that used to always use me as a middleman to get pills, he was like, he was like, hey, do you do you want a 30 milligram Roxy? And I was like, no way, dude. Like, I'll die. Like, you said you threw up when you took one. I was like, wow, that's just like 30 milligrams. Yeah. That's next level. Yeah. And so he's like, we'll just get it. He's like, it's 10 bucks. If you don't, he's like, take half. He's like, you can handle two seven and a half milligram pills, right? I'm like, yeah, that is true. I could handle that. He's like, if you feel good, cool. If you don't, don't get another one. And if you do feel good, take the other half. So I hadn't closed. You're supposed to close eh, one or two loans a day where I was working. Hadn't closed a loan in 11 days. Took that pill, got on the phone, still remember it. To this day, talked to a lady from Colorado, closed a huge loan, 400 and something thousand dollar loan. First call I took after that pill. I worked with a therapist in the future, and she was like, that's when your mind made that mm, click. Like a reward of some kind, right? This five, $10 thing yeah. just helped me close a $2,300 loan. Yeah. This is actually helping me. Yeah. This can pay for itself. <laughs> I had no idea that unlike alcohol, where you get a hangover and alcohol goes to a different place for me, down the road, but um, I, I made that I made that shift. Like, holy shit, I feel good at work, and yeah. I, so I started meeting that guy in the bathroom and buying a hundred dollars worth. Mm. Or I would text him, and he would come drop them under my keyboard like he was looking for something in my desk. Mm. Um, well, what's scary about those is you progressively take bigger and bigger amounts. I mean, I I have a very limited. Like I've told, I've told you, like Oxy, like Oxy was my first thing, and it was for wisdom teeth. Funny enough, and I loved it. Like, but it wasn't, it wasn't as much the pain relief. It was what you were saying. I love the like smushy. Like I just felt so loving. Mm-hmm. I remember, you know, I'd come home from work and I would just be what I felt like was the best father around my kids, and you know, I was just so happy, and it, it just made me kind of de-stress, and it made me, you know, like just could chill and have have such a great night at home, and. And I, I remember those early feels and I had oxy 15s and I think I was super over prescribed at some point. I think I had 60 of them. And, and so, you know, I started using them obviously outside of just the pain. And then what I did notice was how often I started using them more and more and more. And, and even now I've told you, it's like, man, I, I love that feeling. I just love that feeling of peacefulness and I can see why it becomes so damn addicting. And that's why I know like heroin, right? I mean, there is no fucking way I could ever come near that. If that makes people feel the way that Oxy does on whatever 10x scale or whatever that is, I mean, no fucking way. Because I love that feeling so much. You know, and I can see that addiction. Like, I can see that was the first real addiction, like, that I could ever see in my life. That, like, an addiction to a drug, addiction to a substance that I could ever see. 
and it's legal, right? I mean, it's a prescribed legal drug. And I mean, now there's a huge crap down against it, but at this time you're going Massive. through it. We're still in the, you, you're still clearly in the, you know, where they were very openly prescribed. I just watched something on Netflix where it's talking about some doctor that was writing, she was working like 18 hour days. The or black something. lady? Yeah, out of like that North Carolina insane, or huh? something. Yeah, yeah. She, crazy. she gave the 12 year old girl like 80 80s. And they were 80s. Yeah, yeah, she was distributing 80s. She gave her a bunch of Soma. Yeah. And some other stuff on top of that, and the pharmacist was like, "Yeah, hell it's that no. pharmacist show, hell yeah, the no. pharmacist on Netflix or something, right?" It's crazy to see. I mean, she now it's like that crazy too. crackdown, right? Which is awesome. I'm glad to see it, but but like during your time, this is I mean, this is when they were more readily available through those sources or through others. You know, it's gone too much the other way. Yeah, I took my best friend to the ER on Thursday. They thought she had appendicitis, all these other things. Doctor would push on her stomach; she'd scream. Mm. When we left. He gave her seven five-milligram pills. The only way they got her to stop screaming, they gave her one shot of morphine that's 30 milligrams, Mm. excuse me, 15, and gave her a second one almost right on top of it when it just came right back. So they gave her 30 milligrams in an hour, and then when we went to leave, I saw the script, and I was furious. I was like, seven five milligram pills it took you 30 in a two-hour period yeah. to calm down and now he just gave you 30 till you can see 35 milligrams till you can see your doctor yeah. i'm like it has shifted so horribly yeah. where every doctor's like i don't want this on my but hand. in a way yeah in a way it's almost had to right because it's so yeah. you know there's been so much horrible like negativity from it you know okay keep going keep going yeah um so Basically, let's let's just let's just let's fast forward. Yeah. Um, things things get uh, man, things get really bad. Um, one night, I my dealer went to Minnesota. He asked me, "Are you going to be okay?" I'm like, "Of course, I'm going to be okay." Like, what are, you, what are you talking about? I'm like, yeah, go 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 vacate. Like, <laughs> I'm, I'm good. Yeah. And then I start realizing. Um, I started feeling really, really weird. Mm. Like at this point, how much were you using? Would you say at that point, like on a daily basis? Ten thirties. Wow. Okay. This is like your first vacation or your first time that you're thinking that you're going to go without them. That it's not a big deal or something. Yes. Yeah. Exactly. And then about half a day in, I'm like, man, something's wrong. Day out, I'm telling my girlfriend, I just need to go home. I couldn't be around her. I couldn't be touched. And when I say touched, it's like can't even touch my arm, my mm. face. Like it's my skin's crawling. I, I'm like, I don't know what's going on. Um, man, things just got really gnarly. And uh, before this, all of my close friends were like, bro, you are so fucking high every time we see you. You're mm. like, you act so different. Um. And I thought they were overreacting. I'm like, I've quit smoking. Just fuck smoking. I'm not going to smoke. I quit drinking. Just fuck drinking. I don't want to be a drunk dumbass. <laughs> this is just the same. And so I basically, that guy was gone. And um, fuck, this is such a painful memory. Um, I knew my daughter was coming. So... Started on a Friday night. I started detoxing off pills on a Friday night, like the full-on 24-hour detox. It hit. Yeah. 
mm-hmm. and I know that Sunday my daughter's coming. So I'm just like, I, I, I fucking can't sleep. I can't stop squirming. It's the most painful shit ever. Um, I don't want anything from anybody. I just remember it got so bad that I was laying on my porch, um, banging my head on the cement, begging God, whatever the hell was going on to make it stop. I go through all that. I tell my two closest guy friends, I'm like, hey, listen, here's what's going on. I was taking the pills. They're like, yeah, bro, you're, 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 you're coming off, whatever. I literally just... Fuck, man. I started on a Friday night. My daughter was coming in on Sunday. It was awful. We couldn't leave the house, and I was trying to hide it from her. I just told her dad had the flu. Put on a movie with her. I remember going to the pool. It was embarrassing. I had to just lay by the pool and watch my daughter. And my daughter being with me was, like, such such a miracle. I had fought for, like, three years to even spend time with my daughter. And here we are. I'm trying to come off these pills. I'm trying not to basically be a pussy it's just how I felt like you got to just push through this. Like I had no idea what I was up against. Mm. So my daughter ends up staying with me for a week. I, I'm in so much physical pain the whole time, virtually no sleep and stuff. And I'm just con- trying to convince her that I have the flu. Can we just stay in and, and rent some movies at home and, and just, and just stuff like that. And then that guy comes back and, um, I tell him everything I had gone through. And, and two of my friends were like checking in on me every day. I'm going through all that stuff. The dealer comes back. I tell him what's going on. He's like, do you want me to, to get you some? Do you, do you want some? Do you need some? No, 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 no. I don't want to go down that road anymore. Yeah. Just like whatever. Um, by, that, by that Sunday night, I had already gone and met him. Mm. Couldn't take the way that I felt anymore. Anyways, long story long, I go back and forth with that, trying to get off that. Um, like I'll, I'll try to be clean for like two or three days. It gets so awful. I can't work. I can't eat. Yeah. I can't sleep. Just back and forth until basically I almost kill myself, um, literally. So on May 26th, I'm in Arizona. I'm trying to detox at home, and I want to sleep my whole way through it. And so I tell a guy to get me some somas. So he got me 20 somas the first day. I went through 20 somas in one day. More drugs to counter the other drugs. So yeah. Yes. <laughs> Exactly, yeah. just like they call it marijuana maintenance. People that, yeah. switch to weed yeah. to mellow them out, to get off stuff. So second time I go get 20 from him, I'm like, man, this stuff doesn't even hit me like it used to. And Soma equals coma. So I'm like, I want to be fucking practically asleep by the time I get home. I pop eight on an empty stomach after I meet this guy. Mm-hmm. Last thing I told my mom was that I didn't want to live anymore. My life was just awful. And then I said, and I got to go because I saw him pull up. My mom's scrambling to find my sisters because she thinks I'm going to go commit suicide. Because mm. the last thing I said is, I can't do this anymore. And I hung up. So I come to. Did your I, parents ever know at that time kind of what you were like, the, you know, the drugs you were using or kind of what, what was really going on? Or they're just kind of seeing this maybe broken person from the outside or I think I told my mom about the about the being addicted to gotcha. the pills yeah um so I take those eight somas I'm driving home and all I remember is at some point I said oh my god get your shit together you're gonna fucking die I didn't know why I was having that thought so when I have that thought I know the sun's setting but there's still tons of light 
Next thing I know, I feel this just impact, like an impact that will take your life. And I hear like somebody trying to bust my window and I fade back out. And finally, I come to, and there's a, there's a girl who's on top of me. And she's like yelling my name, Kyle, Kyle. How the hell do you know my name? Don't worry about that. She's like, I'm with the blah, blah, blah fire department. She goes, I got to cut your shirt off. Don't cut my shirt. It's like an $8 shirt. I'm just not in there. I'm just yeah. not. I'm barely coming to. She's like, honey, your shirt is the least of your concerns. I need to see how bad you're hurt. So apparently I had been running cars off the road for God knows how long. There were 64 calls into 911 of somebody running cars off the road. That was me. Apparently when I hit, a bunch of people have been following me, <laughs> parked, <clears throat> pulled over, and my car caught on fire, which I didn't find out till later when I'm in the hospital. They went to break my window and couldn't. Somebody said, don't break his window. I think his neck's broken because the way I was sitting. Mm. And so they had the dilemma of, do we let him burn in the car or try to pull out somebody with a broken neck? Anyways, somehow by the grace of God, I get out of that. No DUI, no nothing. Um, I got a really bad concussion, and my le- my left knee got smashed in the accident. And that was kind of that was kind of the start. And I'm gonna just basically fast forward to my story where base where I want to warn anybody who's listening, doing a geographical. Just remember, wherever you go, there you are. All the problems that you have, if you haven't treated them and you just go somewhere where there's still four walls and the sun comes up yeah. and people drive cars, you still got the same fucking problem. Yeah. And here's the thing is, drugs and alcohol were not my problem. They were actually my solution. My solution to somebody who fucking hated himself, somebody who was never good enough no matter what he accomplished, his wife was never good enough, no matter how beautiful she was, no matter how much she did everything for me. Just It didn't matter. Nothing was good enough in my life. I had a lot of young things at a young age. Bought my first house at 20, my second house at 24. My first car I paid for cash was an Infinity at age 19. So whoever's directing this universe put a lot of things into my life at a very young age that most people probably start getting into their 30s. And my life was just the opposite. I was already buying my own house at 20 and driving an infinity and was married. But it wasn't until 32 till these pain meds came mm. into my life. And so without going into my drunk log, eventually I end up going from Arizona to Utah, doing a geographical, because my parents thought, well, if you don't know any drug dealers, you'll be fine. Bullshit, you'll just yep. go find new ones. Yep. Different... <laughs> Different places, same faces, same shit. It's wherever you go, there you are. So I end up into a $1,300 a day Roxy habit. I do no less than 50 a day. Uh, start with eight in the morning. So that's 240 milligrams just to get going. I'll sometimes have to wake up in the middle of the night and go snort pills because I'm already I'm already detoxing yeah. just after a few hours. Yeah. Um, making up lies at work. Like I have to go get my dry cleaning because I have an important event that night. So I go meet my drug dealer. 
and he only works certain times. Everything just turns into dollars a day. Yeah, got a $34,000 paycheck for a two-week period, and uh, it was gone in 11 days. Wow. 11 days. That, that could have changed my life, could have taken care of a lot yeah. of things that were hanging over <clears> my head, <throat> mm-hmm. and instead, nothing to show for him. Um, next paycheck after that was $14,000. Fuck, that probably lasted four days. On top of that, I had 13 payday loans for over $15,000. Wow. That was floating on top of all of that. There's a saying that one's too many and a thousand's not enough. And that was my story. Mm. No matter how much I put in me, drugs and alcohol were my solution to the problem, which was me. And unless I do certain, basically... My experience is, to anybody listening to this, I've tried going to church, I've tried spiritual books, I've tried getting freakishly in shape, mentally and physically, I've used women, success, money, sex, Uh, I've been a hardcore gambler, thousands of dollars a week gambling, I've been good at it, I've tried every single thing to not be a drug addict or an alcoholic, but I will say this. I believe that it's my journey and that I chose this path before I ever came to this world. And I believe the reason I chose this path is because in order for another man or woman, for me to look at them and say, I understand how you feel. It's okay. It will get better. There's nothing to think. There's... You cannot think your way out of this disease. It's not a thinking problem. We're some of the smartest people that there are. We have to figure out how to come up with money for drugs and alcohol when we don't have fucking shit to our names. There's no. It's not a lack of knowledge thing. It's an action thing. There's nothing to think about. There's just things to do. Mm. And... I don't want to try to reinvent the wheel because, like I just said in the statement before, I've tried every fucking way to not have to belong to a group like Alcoholics Anonymous or any of the other anonymouses. But my experience is when I have reached rock bottom and my family has told me to fuck off, my friends told me we don't want anything to do with you, when I was unemployable, I could go be around those people and they could, and it didn't matter how many times I had failed. They don't shoot their wounded, and they always say, "Welcome back." Mm. And they've always taken me in, even when my own family has been like, "Fuck off!" Like how how many times? Yeah. And for me, until it takes rigorous honesty, and then from there, just action and action, but. But I can't, so I can't say this with drugs and alcohol. Got to the point where there's no more euphoria in it. I couldn't get high anymore. All I was doing was living to not get sick. Yeah. Because 
one of the unfortunate consequences of opiates is as soon as you quit using them, you will not be able to sleep. Your body will go into the most awful fucking withdrawals you could wrap your head around. You cannot eat. You, you, I, I always said an eight-year-old could come jump me. That's how that week. pathetic wow. and weak, that week. And I am not exaggerating. Yeah. Um, this last time when I, when I got everything taken out, like you go, I, I went to a hospital to get, me, to get medically stable. That's it. Doesn't mean I can walk straight. It just means they know when I leave, I'm not going to die. There's only two things you can die from when you detox. There is no case and there never will be a case of anybody dying of opiate withdrawal. A lot of people like, but my friend died of heroin. Yeah, heroin overdose. Not one human being has ever died of opiate withdrawal ever. So you don't have to get medically stabilized from that. You're going to feel like you're going to die. You're going to wish you could die. The only two things that you can die from is alcohol and benzos. They're both anti-seizures, anti-seizure medication. So if somebody's going to a treatment center that's been on alcohol, they'll ask him to have two or three drinks. The airport, on the, on the plane, oh. get fucked up. But you got to keep drinking or else you will go into seizure and could die. I remember I, someone special in my life recently had gone through some stuff and they, it was like that. Like, don't go cold turkey, right? Like, come in. You know, there was a different approach coming into it than what I expected. And I was actually kind of relieved to hear that. You know, it's like they, the, the most safe way to do it, right? Like if you're coming off benzos when you go to the hospital, they will give you these really lightweight benzos for like three days to stabilize you mm. that are really low but enough that they know you won't go into seizure. Um, with alcohol, it's lithium is what they need to give them mm. so that their body is, so they won't seize up. Crazy. Um, the, the, bottom, the bottom line for me in all of this is that before addiction took me to my fucking knees. When I say to my knees, I learn, I'm a visual learner and I picture my head being on a curb and that curb having a bunch of murky water and that my addiction coming and curb stomping the fuck out of my head and leaving me for dead. It finished me off. This guy's dead. He's not coming back. Let's go. He's done. Huh. He'll, he'll be gone in 10 minutes. It's taken me to, to that brink before where I, where I can certainly see it. There's been times I've looked in the mirror and said, will I ever even feel like I belong on this earth again? I felt so separated and so physically and mentally tormented and messed up. So, so what was that turning point? I mean, here we are now. We're talking, you know, you said J- July 24th, yeah. a little more than seven, seven and a half months at this point. Yeah. Um, you know, what, what was it for you? Because, I mean, you've even talked about these groups and different things and how that never really, you know, connected with you. I mean, what was that final thing? Because I know you had had several times before that where, and I think that's where the family, friends, and all these other people at some point, you know, they don't know what to do. You know, it's just kind of yeah. like, well, I can't help you anymore, right? Yeah. I've given you all I can. And, you know, these people start to disappear, which seems like even more reason to continue your addiction, you know? 
Um, it so, is. <laughs> right? And, and when your friends start dying of addiction, it's even more reason to get fucked up because yeah. you're in pain because one of your boys just fucking died on you. Yeah. So, I mean, what was that point? What, what was that turning point? Because I met you, I mean, this yoga under the stars would have been right around then, right? I mean, oh, early, yeah. early August maybe? Oh, or? yeah. <laughs> I was, no, there's no way I was more than two weeks sober when I met you. Yeah. Because I actually remember we were at Lifetime and I said, this isn't a big deal to the rest of the world, but in my world it is. Um, today I was, I told you I was like 30 days clean and sober. Wow. Yeah, I remember we, yeah, we went to train one day and yeah. I, I remember telling you that and, um, would have been shortly after Burning Man, probably right, early September, so maybe early August or something. When you actually no, because July twenty fourth, so yeah, right around then. Yeah, you would have had. Oh it. yeah, it was. I, right I trained after you Johnson after Energy. Burning Man, yeah, so right. yeah, yeah, you, you went you went off to Burning Man and uh, had some life altering experiences <laughs> there. Yeah, okay, to say the least. So for me, one of the things that I that I, I said just a minute ago is there's nothing to think about. There's just things to do. Yeah. When your friends and family keep trying to intervene, they're saving you from the gift of desperation. Mm. When you are truly desperate to the point of you won't be able to eat, sleep, be part of this world, if you don't take action, you'll take action. Well, everybody doesn't, clearly, right? I mean, there, there are those who are lost to it. But, I mean, you did. You have taken action. I mean, you are one of those who... I've done enough to, to so, dig out. So some of the things that help me today, and again, this is my experience, and I'm not saying anybody else needs to try to have my experience, but what I do know is there's a program that started in the 1930s by two men that I feel like were inspired by God um, that believed that their dilemma was alcohol was their solution, and it, but it was also their problem. Mm-hmm. And so they set out and they, they set out a program. And so I know everybody's going to come up. Well, certain people may try to come up with different ways. But here's the thing for me is the will's already been invented. I don't need to reinvent it. And that's why I said I've already tried getting into insane physical condition to the point of even com- to competing, mm-hmm. getting up on a stage. So I was that physically fit. Um. I've tried making a shitload of money, check. I've tried being with a lot of hot chicks, check. Um, doing some prestigious things at work, check. Like going to, not not, not being religious, but going to church just because, you know, that's where good people go. Um, it's just, I don't believe that at all anymore. Uh, quite the opposite, actually. And so... Um, when I was in that intensive outpatient, that six-week program, there was a girl, and she used to always say, hey, we come to a meeting with me? And I declined the first four times. And the fifth time that she said, hey, will you come to a meeting with me? I said, well, obviously I need to go or you wouldn't keep asking me. <laughs> Good for her. So I show up. Um, it's a little, bit, a little bit strange. It's like at night. It's at 930. It's a meeting called Candlelight that, by the way, anybody listening uh, happens every night of the week, 930, if you're ass is falling off and you need somewhere to go around people who will understand you. And I want to say this to anybody who is open to going to a meeting. Look for the fucking similarities in your story and not the differences. I can look at a man who has a 20-inch beard 
looks like he hasn't showered in a month. And I can look at some banging hot chick. And as I hear their story, I hear my own story. What I hear is I hear that pain inside Mm. that as one man described, if my friends and my family knew how bad I hurt inside, they would stop judging me and go get the fucking heroin for me. That has always stuck with me. Damn, brother, I understand that feeling. Mm. So to anybody who's listening, if you're open to going to a meeting, and I want to stress this, going to meetings will not keep you from drinking or using. It's just a fellowship. But if you'll go and you'll listen to those people's stories and what they've done. So uh, um, back backtracking to that girl inviting me to a meeting, Everybody had kept saying, hey, the way that this has worked for me is I've got a sponsor and we've gone through the steps. So I see this guy stand up. He says he's from California. He's wearing like cool designer shorts. Looks like looks and sounds like a cool dude. Talks about how Roxy's and cocaine took him to his knees. Alcohol is part of his story too, just like mine. And yeah, I know I didn't really get into the alcohol story, but the drunk log was getting too long. Anyways, <laughs> so... A guy stands up in the meeting. He gets called on, and he says, I'm looking for some guys to sponsor. I've hit a wall in my own sobriety, and to get out of my head and my place, I need to work with some other guys. Amazing. So I look at my friend, and I'm like, I'm going to ask him. She's like, fuck yeah. All excited. Do the little circle after the meeting, hold hands. I go to turn around, talk to the guy. He's only three people away from me. And some guy's already talking to him mm. and talking to him. So I tell my friend, I'm like, okay, let's go. Obviously, it wasn't meant to be. She's like, fuck no. I'll stay here for a week. I like, like this friend. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and for the record, I think she's been clean for nine years now. Amazing. She is a badass. I won't drop her name and ruin her anonymity. No, <laughs> um, so I'm like, we, we sit there and. It's not, I mean, people talk after the, they call it the meeting after the meeting and that's normal. These guys talk for a long time. I probably told this girl, let's go three times. We're already, we're already past the half an hour waiting. She's like, no, I'm dug in. We're not going anywhere. So I told that. So finally the other guy leaves, uh, I tell this guy, I say, I say, Hey, when you told your story, it really sounded like mine. Um, and I was like, I don't have a sponsor, and I'd like you to be my sponsor. And I said, I know you've already been here a really long time. I'll just get your number. So I do. I get his number. End up going over to his house, talking to him and stuff. And um, He lives in this fucking piece of shit apartment. 700 bucks a month, two bedroom, one bath. You can hear everything from the neighbor upstairs to the door. And the Man, it's just a bad place. Mm. This dude's broke as hell, which I find out later. It's not who I thought was he was with that night. Anyways, um, so I asked him to sponsor me, and, and we get in, and we start, we start doing the work. And so fast forward to today. I love how that was to build his, like to help him with his own sobriety too, right? I love that part of it. I mean, that's incredible. That's how we stay sober yeah. is we can only get, we can only keep what we're willing to give. Yeah. And so all the people oh, that have yeah. time, when we go to our meetings, the newcomer is the most important person because 
that's the person that needs that somebody to reach to reach out and yeah. even if even if they're not ready then but so my experience has been is that if somebody will work with the sponsor go through the steps and basically there's there's tons of action that's involved and they will be able to learn that they're not crazy they're not weird they're not unique there's just a lot of pain and a lot of hurt inside and a lot of like one thing we do is in uh, step nine we make amends to all people we had harmed except where to do so would injure them or others so sometimes the best amends we can make is a limit living amends there's some girls that i've probably hurt and i'll never talk to them again in my life i wouldn't even know how to find them if i remembered their names and so I make a living amends. I try to live my life right today. And then sometimes we, w- we would be able to find those women. And the way we make an amends is by never darkening their doorstep again mm. with our presence. Um, sometimes people have stole pills from their grandmother, grandfather, family member who's dead now. You make a living amends. Um, I had a friend who his last night of drinking, he was married. I introduced him to his wife. He's the one who took my first meeting ever. Uh, and his last night of drinking, he and my friend hooked up with a girl. So how do you make an amends to your wife and tell her what happened? Two kids later, mm. her thinking you're the most amazing husband in the world because she's seen you change your life from a drunk to this amazing father and provider. Now you come back and say, hey, by the way, my last night, this is what I did. So with the guidance of a sponsor... It was suggested to him. He's he's very well off. He make a very sizable donation to a batter women's shelter and to volunteer there for 30 hours. Hmm. So that in the future that everyone back to him, he gets to see what happens to women who don't have a place to stay, who have been through all this crap. But through the guidance of a sponsor, that's how he's able to do it. So some of the things that I do today, because we, we want to get onto the solution, is um, I have a service position. I do a men's meeting. I chair it, so just meaning I run the meeting. Um, I, it's a six-month commitment, and um, it's at Cutthroat Barbershop. That guy that I asked to be my sponsor has been clean for 10 years now. Amazing. Owns two barbershops, lives in a baller house, um, is doing all kinds of things in the community to give back. He pays for kids to go get barber scholarships. He pays their whole tuition. He does so much to give back, and he doesn't tell anybody. I I found all this stuff out, just like digging it out of him, bits and pieces (laughs) here and there. But 10 years later, that guy that was at that meeting, and by the way, here's what's cool about that meeting. That guy called his sponsor that night, and he told his sponsor, A is not working for me. After about a year and a half, completely clean and sober, A is not working for me. I'm not getting anything out of it. And the sponsor said, well, what the fuck are you putting in it? Mm. Putting anything in, of course you're not going to get anything out. He said, how many guys are you working with? He said, none. And he's like, there you go. There's no no action on your part. How are you supposed to stay sober when you're not giving this back? Yeah. So this is what he told them to do. Go online and find a meeting you've never been to, never. Show up, stand up. And say you're looking for guys to sponsor. And Kyle Crosby (laughs) happened to be there at that meeting. 
10 years later, the guy who's so broke, I used to buy his cigarettes for him. He never asked me to, but he always was using my notice. He didn't have any. <laughs> and, I, and I stocked his fridge more than once. He didn't ask me. I know he didn't have anything. 10 years later, he has two barber shops that are just blowing up. Um, and so many other things on the side and so many things that, that he's doing to give back. So anyways, they're, they're, if you're feeling hopeless, I'm, all, I'm a little bit all over the place right now, but this is so important to me. The one thing that, that I found, I was hopeless. I didn't believe I was employable anymore. I didn't believe I'd ever be a good father, brother, son. All of those things that maybe somebody that's listening to is feeling this right now. And I found just that glimmer of hope. I remember a man saying his life had got so bad when he checked into a treatment center that none of that his wife didn't come, none of his ex-wives came, none of his children came to see him. And the only guy that came was a guy from his work to bring him a carton of cigarettes. And this this has been a few years back when that stuff, everybody used to chain smoke. And I remember this man saying he had absolutely nothing in his life, and the only thing the only reason he had to stay sober, to live, sorry, to not take his life, was just to try to stay sober for that day, believing if he did, one day at a time, things could get better. And that's been my experience. So today, I have a sponsor. We do go through the steps. I have a service position at the barbershop of the guy who was my first sponsor. I've had, I'm on my third sponsor right now over an eight-year period. It's pretty normal. People Come and go. Some personalities work, some don't. All that a sponsor's job is is to take a man through the steps. If you end up becoming friends, if you end up wanting to go have lunch and go work out at the gym, that's all gravy. But the only role of a sponsor is to take another man through the 12 steps. That's it. Not to be their life coach, their relationship coach, any of that. So I have a sponsor. We work the steps. I have a service position. Um, I have two home groups. A home group is basically a place where you show your face every week. Or if you were gone a couple of weeks. Someone would check on you. Yeah. Like, yeah. are you okay? It actually happened to me. I was really sick the Sunday before. And at 8, the meeting starts at 6.30. At 6.32, I had a text. Where are you? Mm. I said, you're so sweet. I'm good. Just super sick today. Yeah. But that that's, I, I didn't I didn't know what a home group was when I came around. So I have a home group. I have a sponsor. I have a service position. We work the steps. And... I believe that something greater than myself is restoring me to sanity. Hmm. And I think being sitting here, being able to talk about this with you is proof of that. Um, <laughs> expectations are like masturbation. Sometimes you're just fucking yourself. <laughs> so <laughs> you dropped so not, many good quotes in here today. <laughs> it's not necessarily that life automatically gets better, gets different. Yeah. Maybe not better, but I will tell you this. I don't come to in the morning. I wake up. I love that. And I don't scream at God and tell him, I'm fucking still here. I didn't do enough to take myself out. And then waking up and having nothing to live for except wanting to end it. And thank whoever's running this, my life, that 
I feel like I had to, I needed to wear the shoes of an alcoholic, a drug addict, a gambler, a sex addict, all these other shoes, so I can look a man in the eyes and tell him, it's okay, brother. I know how you feel. I promise it'll get better. We just have to start taking action. And there's a reason why the windshield on a car is huge and the rearview mirror is tiny. Future's ahead of us. And our past is just a tiny blip. We're looking back. And eventually, again, I said I like to learn and now I'm an analogy. I learn using analogies, and so Visuals, yeah. I, I heard this, and I love it. So during our drinking and our using, or just anybody who who's, knows they're not living their life the way that they should, you can you can take out that word alcohol, that word drugs. It's only in the it's only in the twelve steps one time, which is on step one. One time you can put in the word fucking cupcakes, cocaine, betting. Porn, whatever the, whatever the hell you, you, you think you struggle with, you can just insert that there, and then all the rest, all the rest is the same. Um, man, what was I? I was about to like say one of the most important things, and I got so like worked up. <laughs> oh my gosh, what, what was I talking about just before that? <laughs> oh, okay, the analogies. Oh yeah, yeah. Okay. Your visual learning. So yeah, so while we're active in our disease and our drinking. We're driving this car. It's called life. And we smoke a pack of cigarettes. We throw them in the back seat. We do sandwich, throw the wrapper in the back seat. We just keep throwing stuff in the back seat. And we haven't cleaned up our side of the street yet. And eventually, we hit the fucking brakes and we say, enough. I give up. I surrender. And all that shit comes and hits you in the back Flying of the head. Forward, yeah. And that's where we start cleaning up our side of the street. All that shit we don't want to deal with. Well, man, he used this amazing analogy, which helped me. I had so much anxiety because I had some legal issues. I had some issues, baby mama issues. I had all these issues. And this man who went from being homeless and having to cuddle another man to not freeze to death, literally, that now has a degree that now works at the VOA with other men that were like him and homeless. This man with the degree now, he used this analogy and this helped me so much because I used to have so much anxiety because I was facing so much. He's like, there's this closet and it's just jammed full of all the things we need to take care of. And if we open the closet, it all might just fall on top of us and kill us. But he said, slowly plan it out where you're going to open the closet door really slow you're going to take one thing out. Fuck the rest of the closet. Just take that one thing, put it in front of you. Handle that one thing today. Hmm. And let that be enough and go to bed clean and sober. And tomorrow, open the closet. And if it's too much and you can't grab something out, it's okay. Don't beat yourself up. Go to bed clean and sober. But what you'll find if you keep opening that door is you'll take care of that one thing. And someday you may take care of that one thing and you're like, that was really easy. I'm going to go open it. And I'm going to take out a second thing. And he said, eventually, if you will keep doing that, and again, if it ever gets to be too much, close the door, make peace with it, and just go to bed clean and sober. But eventually you open that closet. You'll be able to stretch your arms and your legs out to the point you could do a jumping jack in there. <laughs> and little by little, millimeter by millimeter, that closet 
It's all cleaned out. Wow. And I think of it like that. Like, it's kind of like going back to the gym. Millimeter by millimeter. And then you haven't seen me for four months. It's 120 days of millimeters. <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, that seems like the perfect conclusion. You're fucking amazing. I love the, I love all of the visual ways that you look at things, right? It's like a s- certain way that people, people see things. I think that closet example is incredible because like you said, I think that that moment of where you face that addiction, that moment where you, you know, go into rehab or whatever that action is, that is that, you know, where you're driving and all that shit hits you. Right. But at the same time, learning from that point on, like how to deal with that stuff, you still have to clean that up, right? It's like that all that stuff is there. You still have to clean that up. You still have to deal with that mess, but you don't have to take it all at one, you know, take it all at one time. Well, you're awesome, man. I really appreciate your vulnerability. Your story's incredible. Can't wait to see it in book form. Do you have a title yet for your book that I'm telling you you need to write? Three cents for your pain. (laughs) You're awesome. All right. Thanks so much, man. I appreciate you joining me. Thanks for listening to this episode of The Universal Mindset. Please do me a favor and subscribe to the podcast, leave a review, and share this episode with any other people that you believe need to hear it. For this and all other episodes and to find additional content, please visit theuniversalmindset.com. Thanks again for listening, and I love you all so much.